0: Hey, good morning. You guys doing okay? Wow, okay, that bad. Well, uh, I'm glad you made it to church anyway. It's really fun to have you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, man, we've we've had a really incredible week. We cleared our calendar as a team, as a church, and did as much prayer and fasting over this last week as we could. And uh, it was really, really fun just to seek the heart of God for our church, for our city, and so much vision and energy and passion came out of that, so really excited about that. Uh, thank you, those of you that joined us. It was really fun to have you. Uh, today, like Sean said, we're going to take a break from what we normally do, and instead of going kind of chapter by chapter through the book of Hosea, we're, we're about five weeks into that series. What we're going to do is press pause, and I want to talk with you about something that I think is really misunderstood and really neglected in Oklahoma. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're kind of wondering, man, do I fit in? Do I belong? I think today will be helpful for you, because we're talking about one of the primary uh, ways that people enter Christianity, actually. So this is a great day for you just to uh, ask questions and, and and maybe wrestle with some of the claims of Christianity. So we're so glad you're with us. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to jump in. So God, would you, would you in this moment, would you move in power, Holy Spirit? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus I pray that no matter how we came into the room, whether we feel really close to you and aware of your love or whether we're just kind of standoffish or our hearts are closed or cold to you, whatever it is that we feel, whatever it is that we brought in, we lay it at your feet and we ask by your spirit, would you elevate the truth of your word and fix our eyes on Jesus? And I, I really specifically pray for the people in the room that are far from you that they would come to know your love today that they'd come to receive your grace today, and that this would become something that they don't just kind of know in their head, but they'd experience the reality of in their heart. So come and move in power. Pray these things in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and head to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one is where we're gonna be, and if you're new to the Bible, we're gonna have the words up on the screen. Also, you can find this in the, what we call the New Testament, which is like near the back half of the Bible. So head over to Mark chapter 1, and instead of us just kind of going verse by verse through this passage, we're going to bounce around. So uh, don't feel pressure to like, you know, get crazy and turn everywhere. We'll have a lot of these verses on the screen for you so that you can follow along. Have you ever been in a baptism service, and one of the ways that the person starts out explaining what baptism is, and they say something like this, now, baptism doesn't save you. Uh, And then they go on to talk about all the things that baptism doesn't do. And about halfway through, you're kind of sitting there wondering, well, what does baptism actually do? right? All that guy told me was that doesn't save me. Uh, And sometimes we even make comments like, well, it's not special magical water and all these things. And so what's happened with many of us, if you have any background in church, there's a little bit of confusion and there's a little bit of fogginess about this idea of baptism. What does it actually even do? Or is it just this meaningless rite that Christians do as they come into Christianity? Today, we're going to talk about baptism, because at the end of the service, we get to baptize some people. Some of those people are like ready for that, and we're planning on that, and some of you, I think we're going to get to baptize you, and you did not come in today thinking that you were going to get baptized. So this is going to be a really fun service, and what I want to do by the end of today is I want this to click inside of your head and your heart, so that when you see the person go under the water, and you see that person come up out of the water, you know exactly what is taking place. You know exactly what it means And what's happening so that's where we're headed I want to give you a biblical vision of baptism today before we do that I want to throw up a picture on the screen Uh, this was taken at the end of May in 2013 and if you can look past my gnarly gross beard uh, you'll see in the background some rubble and that was what was left of my home after a tornado swept through my neighborhood and probably your neighborhood and destroyed my house And I'll never forget when we found out, when we finally found out that we had lost our home in the tornado, I had turned to my wife. Our neighbor was the one that told us, hey, your house is totally gone. And I I turned to my wife, and she was in tears. And I was thinking, like, yeah, I mean, she's got to be sad. We just lost all of our possessions, all of our stuff. And the first words out of her mouth were, I should have grabbed our love letters. I should have grabbed our love letters. And what normally happened in a tornado scare in the past is we'd have like bags of stuff ready to go and all the important documents and whenever there was a scare, we'd grab it all and, you know, get to where we needed to go. But this time, for whatever reason, my wife didn't grab anything. She left our dog, all of our stuff. She left it all and just grabbed our daughter, which I'm really glad that she grabbed our daughter. And um, she was pregnant with our second at the time. She jumped in the car minutes before the tornado and left the scene. And so she was just devastated. She was so torn up that she left these letters. Now, a little bit about the love letters. We, uh, anytime throughout the course of our marriage that we've written a note to each other or a letter or whatever, even if it's like a, hey, have a great day at work, love you, we've always saved that. We put it in a box and every anniversary we'll read through that and it's just this time to remember and look back and laugh and celebrate. And so she was just kicking herself that we left that box there. And then after this, what happened was, we, we made it to the house. We found what used to be our bedroom. Our bed was still there, and the dresser where the love letters were still, the the, the dresser was there. And on top of the dresser was the box of love letters. Our roof was gone. It looked like a bomb had got off in our house. The top of the lid was completely gone, but every single letter was just sitting in the box. And it was like, oh man, thank you God that you kept something that was irreplaceable for us. Like no, No money could buy that back. We could never replace that. Right Now here's the thing about those love letters. On one level, they have no monetary value whatsoever, do they? Like if I tried to sell them on eBay, that would be strange. Uh, husband selling wife's love letters, you know, whatever. No one would want to buy that because they have no monetary value. It wasn't like it was written with the pen that George Washington used when he, you know, whatever. It, it, it was like normal paper, normal ink. On, on a normal box, it wasn't overlaid in gold. There was no monetary value about those letters. But to me, they were the most valuable, precious thing that we had in the entire house. Irreplaceable. Why is that? Something so uh, cheap, right, letters, actually held the most value in our heart because they pointed outside of themselves to a greater reality. They pointed, it was a picture of the love that my wife and I have for each other. This is what they point to. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Baptism functions in a very similar way. On the one hand, this is just a horse trough, right? There's just normal water in this horse trough. But on another hand, this is not just a horse trough and this is not just water. There's something that this is pointing us to. It's a picture that points outside of itself to a greater, more profound reality. And what is going to happen when we take people under the water and bring them up is one of the most powerful, profound moves of God that we could ever witness as human beings. So what's actually happening? What does baptism do? Why Why is it? A really big deal. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And before I can just unpack why baptism matters, I need to give you just a brief biblical history of baptism. So, Mark chapter 1, let's start there. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. They were confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and, a wild, and wild honey. That's weird, right? I don't know why, but that's the way he he was rolling. Verse seven, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he, this greater person, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the very first time in Scripture that we see this idea of baptism, this word baptism, even mentioned. We don't have any record in Old Testament, anything. This is the very first time in Scripture that we see this idea of baptism even mentioned. And it's called a baptism of repentance. And John, John the Baptist, which is a title, not a denomination, so don't freak out. uh, John the Baptist was calling people, and he was saying, Hey, if you feel the weight of your sin." If you feel the weight of shame, if you feel the weight of guilt in your life, then here's the message to you. It's not to clean yourself up. It's not to turn over a new leaf. It's not to try really hard. It's not to, you know, do stuff to earn the favor of God. There's something, if you feel the weight of shame and guilt and sin inside of your life, there's something bigger taking place that you don't have the power to change. You actually need God to cleanse you from the inside out. So come down to the water and get baptized. And what's, what, what this is painting a picture of is you're filthy, not on the outside, but on the inside. And Jesus, by his love, God by his love and by his mercy, he actually wants to do a profound work in your life. And he wants to cleanse you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to make you whole. And so all these people in Judea and Jerusalem, they were coming to John and they were, they were saying, yeah, I want to repent of my sin and I want to go under the water and I, 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 I'm guilty. I've done things that I'm embarrassed about and I've said things to people that I shouldn't have said and, and I've, I look back and I have, I have shameful parts of my story that if I could take out, I would. And those people went under the water as an act of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. The very first time that we see baptism taking place in Scripture. And then John says something interesting. He says, there's someone else coming after me and he's actually greater. He's not just going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just going to be this thing where you go under the water and you come back up but you will be immersed. You'll be submerged with the presence of God. And the presence of God will do a work in your life that you can't do. He'll change you from the inside out. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse all of the shame and all of the guilt. So this is The first time we see baptism. Now, look at what happens next. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice this is massive a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son with you I am well pleased. So what happens in this part of the story, Jesus comes and he gets baptized. Now, have you ever wondered why did Jesus get baptized? The sinless son of God? I thought this was a baptism for people that needed to repent. I thought this was a baptism for people that felt shame and felt guilt and felt the brokenness in their own soul. Why does Jesus, who was sinless, who did not have guilt, who did not have shame, why does he get in the water? Well, here's the answer to that question. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's not identifying with the powerful He's not identifying with the ones that have it all together. He's not identifying with the the morally upright. What Jesus is doing as he enters this water is he is fully identifying himself with the broken, sinful people of this world who feel guilt, who feel overwhelmed at the shame in their life, who feel like there's parts of their story that if they could take out, they would. That's what Jesus is doing as he goes under the water and he comes back up as he's identifying himself with sinful, broken people. And then what happens next in the story, the heavens are torn open. God the Father speaks from heaven publicly for everybody to hear, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Notice Jesus hadn't lifted a finger to do ministry, he hadn't done anything, and God the Father says, you're my son, I love you and I'm pleased with you. Now what happens next in the story is Jesus actually does, he lives that sinless life and then he goes to the cross and on the cross what that picture of Jesus going under the water was, Pointing to actually Jesus hanging on a cross when he took all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of the brokenness and, and he actually, he, he, he went under the waters of the judgment of God and then came back up so that you and I wouldn't have to experience the judgment and the wrath of God. He went under the, he, he experienced the justice of God on the cross so that we could experience forgiveness and love and mercy. And then Jesus, he dies and then he rises again after three days. He rises again from the dead. And he gathers his disciples together. He looks them in the eyes and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the, the rest of the world. And I want you to actually proclaim this good news. That I'm a God that drifts towards the sinful. I'm a God that comes for the broken. I'm a God that loves those that are, are really filled with shame and guilt. I'm a type of God that really wants to forgive and wash them clean. Go tell everybody this message. And then when they believe in me, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now fast forward in the story. Now we're in Acts chapter 2. You don't need to turn here, but I'll throw this up on the screen. The Apostle Peter, he stands up, large crowd of people, and he begins to tell them about their sin begins to tell them about their their shame and their brokenness and unpack all the ways that they've failed to measure up to the standard of God and, and all the ways that they were actually the ones that killed Jesus. And, and but Jesus, he he rose again from the dead and he's alive. And he preaches this really powerful sermon and people are just absolutely devastated by their sin. Look at this. This is in Acts two thirty seven. Now when they heard all that Peter was saying they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do, Peter? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, and and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be forgiven, And then fast forward to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine the epic baptism service that the early church had that day? 3,000 people, right? Must have been hours long. There's Duncan people, and all these people are coming to to Jesus, and they're saying, we've sinned against you, and we're sorry, and we want a new life, And, and they're going under the water, and they're coming back up as forgiven, loved people. Now, when you fast forward in the story, you get to Acts 8, Philip the evangelist, he's preaching the gospel uh, to this random guy, uh, an, an Ethiopian eunuch. This guy responds with repentance and faith, and he wants to become a Christian, and he says, look, there's water right here, what's stopping me from getting baptized? Nothing. So they get out of the carriage, and, and, and they get bab- he gets baptized right there. Acts 16, a woman named Lydia repents of her sin, she's baptized right away. Uh, Later on in Acts 16, there's a Philippian jailer. He repents of his sin and becomes a Christian. He's immediately baptized. Uh, Later on in Acts 22, this is Paul actually sharing his story of how he met Jesus. And I want you to listen to his words. He's, He's giving his testimony and listen to how he words it. He says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, Receive your sight. Do you remember when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and he lost his eyesight because of the glory and power of Jesus? He said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you've seen and heard. Now listen to this very carefully, verse 16 And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, all over Acts, and and I could keep going, but just suffice it to say that every single time that a person encounters the love and mercy of Jesus, without fail, in the book of Acts, every single time that person is immediately baptized right? In fact, sometimes in Scripture it's hard to tell. It's like the reason why people have to say, well, baptism doesn't save you is because there are times where the Scriptures almost make it sound like it does because it envisions this thing all wrapped up together where it's like, yes, Jesus is the one that saves, but if I want to repent of sin, if I want to put faith in Him, the way that I do that is by climbing in the waters of baptism where I publicly before God and people repent of my sin and place my faith in Jesus. I go under the water and I come up a Forgiven, loved, new creation with a new identity. This is really, really powerful stuff. This is why the New Testament scholar, a man named Douglas Moo, who, by the way, has the coolest last name, uh, Douglas Moo says this, says the early church conceived of faith, the gift of the Spirit, and water baptism as components of one unified experience, which James Dunn calls conversion initiation. You want to become a Christian? Here's what you do. You get in the waters of baptism, and this is where you're going to operate your faith in Jesus. This is where the Spirit of God is going to come and fill you. This is where you're going to be given a new identity. This is how you publicly repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. You want to become a Christian? Repent and be baptized. Every single time, this is the way it happens. Now, let me just pause there. So that's the biblical history of baptism. And, and now we're going to kind of ask the question, why does all of this matter? Why, why is this a big deal? Well, here's what I've noticed as I've been doing ministry in Oklahoma a- as a pastor for the last 11 years. What I've realized is that Oklahoma has a very interesting relationship with baptism. In fact, most people that I've interacted with as we've sat down and we've had coffee and we've processed their story and what's happened, most people, the only thing that they know about baptism is that baptism doesn't save. They have no idea what it does. They have no idea the special reality of it. They have no idea what God is even up to when someone gets baptized. All they know is that this is something you're supposed to do and by golly, I'm going to do it. I have no idea what it actually does. And as a result, because there's so much fogginess and confusion, what I've realized is there are many, many, many people that have become a Christian and been a Christian for weeks or months or even years upon years upon years, and they've yet to get baptized. It's like, well, I'll get around to that eventually, and then eventually it's like, well, it's just too late now. I mean, I've been a Christian for 10, 20 years. Why get baptized now? Uh, sometimes it's, it's a story like mine where um, I actually faked being a Christian as a little boy just because I wanted people in my life to like me. So that's kind of jacked up. And I, I remember, you know, pretending to be a Christian and I got baptized as a little boy. And then not long after that, I started to realize I'm not even a Christian. And I faked it for a few more years and a few more years and a few more years. And it wasn't until I was 13 that I actually met Jesus. It wasn't until I was 13 that I became a Christian, and I got baptized for the first time as a Christian. Well, a lot of people, it's like, well, I was baptized as an infant, or maybe I was baptized before I met Jesus, and, you know, so I don't really need to do it again. That one counted, but they've never actually been baptized as a Christian. And then w- the thing that I've started to see even more of that just is absolutely shocking to me is that there are people who never get baptized, It's not like I'll eventually get around to it. They just don't see the big deal of it, and they never get baptized because all they know is, well, baptism doesn't actually save. One other thing I've noticed is that when we do baptism services like we're going to do here in just a minute, the church, you guys, the people that are watching this baptism unfold, have lacked a level of celebration that feels appropriate for the moment, right? Right? So let me, let me say it like this, um, I love sports, I'm an NBA guy, I, I don't know much about soccer, but Sean Evans is like hell-bent on getting me to be a soccer fan, and I want to be, right? So I'm trying to figure it out, and I remember I went to an energy game with them, and I was thankfully with a bunch of people from Liverpool at the time, and they like their soccer, and they would be really mad if, I, if they heard me say soccer, uh, but they like their soccer, and while I was sitting there, everyone was like celebrating and cheering, and, and the guy didn't even score, because you never score in soccer, right? It, it never happened. So I was like, why are they happy? Why, why are you excited right now? And I, I didn't understand, so I had a hard time entering the moment of celebration. I had to have my Liverpool buddies like constantly explaining to me, oh, what he did there was a good, you should be happy. Your team just did a really good thing. Oh, you should be sad. They just screwed up right there. Oh, you should celebrate that. That was a good move right there. And I'm, so I'm learning. I, I had to learn in order to step into the moment of celebration. And I just wonder, could this be true of you, that you don't know actually how to step into this moment of celebration with tears in your eyes, jaws dropped, hearts full, overwhelmed at what God is doing because you just don't know what's actually happening when a person goes under the water and comes back up. Because honestly, if you had a glimpse of what God was really up to in this moment, you would be going bananas. You would be absolutely freaking out, right? So what is happening at baptism? Four quick things. Here's the first one. In baptism, God is the primary one who is speaking. God is actually the primary one who is acting and moving and speaking. Here's what I mean. We tend to think of baptism as something that we do for you, right? So someone's going to come up here, and they're going to share a bit of their story, and they're going to go under the water as a way to tell you out there that they're placing faith in Jesus. But what if that's actually one of the things that baptism is, but way, way, way down the list because the very first thing that baptism is is not us telling God something. It's actually, listen to this, it's God telling that person something. Do you remember what Jesus heard when he went under the water and he came back up? The heavens were opened and God the Father spoke, publicly saying, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. When this person goes under the water and they come back up because they are united by faith to jesus christ listen what god is doing in this moment he's not on vacation he's not just watching from a distance he's not just kind of happy that that person's obeying him what god is doing when we baptize people is he's like tearing open the roof of our church and he's saying that's my son That's my daughter. I love them, and I'm pleased with them, and as surely as that water's washing over them, that's as surely as I've forgiven them of every sin that they've ever done, and I'm giving them a totally, totally new identity. I'm pleased with them. Could I point out this reality? Whether you're a Christian or not, every human heart longs to hear the affectionate blessing and love of a father. Every person wants that. They want a dad to look him in the eyes and say, you matter. You have value to me, and I treasure you, and you have what it takes, and I love you, and, 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 and no matter what you do, I will be pleased with you. Every, every human heart longs for that, and what the Christian gets at baptism as they go under the water and they come back up, they get to hear the voice of God because of the finished work of Jesus. This is my son. I'm proud of you. I love you. This is my daughter. I really will forgive you. There's nothing you could do to earn more of my my love. There's nothing you have ever done to lessen my affection for you. That's what's happening at baptism. This is why the early church and why theologians in the church have called baptism a means of grace not because it brings salvific grace, as they say, but it's like, if you ever listened to a sermon or heard a song or something happen and you just experienced the love of God in a fresh way? Has that ever happened to you? That's what baptism is. It's a means of grace. It's like a, like a heavenly portal, almost, that's opened up where the love of the Father is just being poured into the person's soul. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. God wants to assure us God speaking, this is God at baptism. God wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. As Surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away all my sins. This person is gonna go under the water in a minute and they're gonna come back up and as that water washes over their body, what's happening is God is saying, as real as that water is, that's as real as my love is for that person. And their sin, it's no more, I've drowned it in the ocean of my grace. That's the first thing. Baptism, in baptism, God is the primary one who speaks. Number two, in baptism, we're first speaking to God and then we're speaking to people. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm trying to distinguish between this vertical reality of baptism and this horizontal reality of baptism. Again, here's what most people think when they get baptized. What they think is, I'm coming up in front of the church and I'm telling you guys that I'm placing faith in Jesus Christ. I'm publicly professing my faith to you. But actually what's happening in baptism is something more profound. Before it's two people, this person is getting in the water and they're actually communicating straight to God. Let me read this to you. This is out of... First Peter chapter three verse twenty one. Here's what it says. It says baptism, which corresponds to this. It's talking about the ark of the uh in Genesis. It says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but look at this, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says baptism saves you, not the water washing over you. That's not what connects you to Jesus. He says baptism saves you in this sense, that the physical thing that is being pointed to, the spiritual reality of what baptism is trying to point us to, this is actually the person climbing in the water, staring up in the heavens at God and saying, God, I've sinned against you. I've done things that are wrong. I've, I've hurt people. I've said things that are broken. I've got shame in my past. God, I want to appeal to you. For a clean conscience. The person getting baptized, before they're talking to you out there, they're staring up at God and saying, I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for what I've done. I've got shame in my life. I've got brokenness in my life. I've got addiction in my life. Will you forgive me? Will you make me right? Will you give me a new identity? This person is making an appeal to God. Baptism is first a vertical thing way before it gets to you out there. That's amazing. So here in a minute, we're going to watch some people. They're going to climb in the water, and and whether this person realizes it or not, what they're doing is they're staring up at God and saying, "God, in this moment, I repent of my sin. I have faith in you. I'm giving you my life." That's what I'm doing. It's like exchanging wedding vows. I remember when my wife and I got married, we made vows to each other. So I started and I said some promises to her, and then she responded and she said some promises to me, and then I took a ring and I put it on her finger, and she took a ring and put it on my finger, and what we were doing is we were saying, here's, I'm communicating truth to you, I'm communicating promises, I'm making a covenant to you, and then this ring is a symbol of that vow, right? That's what baptism is. Baptism is us coming into the water saying, God, you're speaking to me. You're reminding, that, you're reminding me that I'm loved and I'm forgiven and I'm, I'm, I really am pleasing to you because of the finished work of Jesus. And then God, in response, I'm speaking to you. I'm sorry for my sin and I confess my brokenness and I need your grace. and Would you give me a new identity? Would you forgive me? Would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? And baptism is like the ring exchange. Can you imagine meeting someone? You're like, so how long have you been married? Oh, 12 years. What was it like? Well, it was weird. We didn't exchange any vows. We didn't exchange rings. Well, did you go to like a courthouse and have someone preside over the ceremony? Oh no, we didn't even have a ceremony. Well, are you sure you're married, right? Did you sign like a a covenant? Did you sign like a, a legal document by the state? No, 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 we didn't do any of that. We just experienced love and affection in our heart for each other. Well, bro, you're not married, right? That'd be the response. Like, you actually haven't gotten married. You haven't done anything that would... That's baptism. Can you imagine? Like, I follow Jesus, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian. You haven't gotten baptized? You haven't, like, told him and told others and had him respond to you? That's what baptism is. Number three, in baptism, we are united to Jesus, we die to our old life, and we're given a new life. In baptism, we are united to Jesus, we die to our old life, and we're given a new life a new life. Here's what I want you to realize, that biblically speaking, there's a big difference between someone responding to the gospel and then celebrating that that person becomes a Christian. You can respond to the gospel in your heart and feel a love for Jesus and feel alive to God without actually then doing this act of baptism that's you saying, this is the moment I'm repenting. This is the moment I'm placing faith in Jesus. I am dying to my old way of life and Jesus, in this process, you are giving me a new life. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans six, chapter three, or chapter six, verse three. He says, "Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus that's his way of describing water baptism, we're baptized into Christ Jesus,'re baptized into His death. In other words, when we baptize someone, we're baptizing that person into Christ Jesus, and we're baptizing them into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is the way, biblically speaking, that a person connects themselves and ties themselves to Jesus by repenting of sin and placing their faith and getting in the water saying, I'm being baptized into his death and being Uh, brought back up showing that i am a new creation i'm i have a heart that's alive to god in modern culture christian culture here's how people respond to the gospel and we celebrate them becoming christians you want to become a christian raise your hand all right you're a christian you want to become a christian walk an aisle all right you're now a christian because you walked the aisle you want to become a christian pray this prayer or fill out this card. And what we've done is we've actually pushed baptism out and what, what has replaced baptism is now this really weird sets of rituals that we've created. And in the New Testament, what it was is, hey, you want to be, become a Christian? Get baptized. That's how you respond to faith in Jesus. Andrew Wilson, he says this. He says, in, the New, in New Testament terms, the appropriate place to declare and celebrate salvation is not when a hand goes up in the air, but when a body goes under the water. So here in a minute, what we're celebrating is these people have been rescued by Jesus. That's when we celebrate. We don't celebrate when they respond by raising their hand. We really celebrate when they go into the water and they come back up. Does this make sense? All right, here's the fourth and final thing I want you to see. There's so many other things I want you to see, but for time's sake, we're gonna limit it. Here's the fourth one. In baptism, we reject Satan's reign and rule over our lives. Now here's what's so fascinating to me about, about this idea. Um, I, I did not think of myself as a Satan worshiper before I met Jesus, right? And maybe you didn't either. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You may not think of yourself as a Satan worshiper. But Ephesians 2 says this, that we were so dead and our trespasses and sins—that we are actually being ruled over by Satan. We are actually giving our lives for his service and doing his will. We are actually—Jesus uh, uh, talks about how before him we, he was our father, and so like we're doing all these things, living for his pleasure, living for his desires, and 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 our hearts are completely dead to God. But when we become a Christian, what happens is that God actually makes a dead heart come alive, and he breaks the power and the reign and rule of Satan, and instead of him being the Lord over our lives, Jesus becomes the Lord over our lives. Baptism is the way that, it's, it's, it's the place where we really celebrate and reject Satan's reign and rule over our lives. Here's how they did this in church history. The, uh, in, in history, uh, Christians realized the power and beauty of baptism. It was so powerful that when someone would go under the water, they actually expected uh, people that had demons living inside of them for those demons to come out, and it happened all the time. And so what happened is they created a list of uh, renouncing statements that they would lead this this person through before they would get baptized. They would lead them through these renouncing statements because this was the moment where this person is rejecting Satan and his rule over their life. So just listen to some of these renouncing statements. Someone's in the water about to get baptized. Here's the question. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. And there are all these questions and statements, these renouncing statements that would be made, and here's what we know in history. Multiple people, they'd come out of the water and and they'd be completely set free from demonic attack. Multiple people that had sicknesses, like physical ailments, would get baptized, and the power of God would manifest in such a profound way that those people would be healed of their ailments. Like, incredible stuff would happen. People coming out of the water would be filled in a fresh way with the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful, powerful thing that's about to happen. It's not just someone going under the water. It's not just that person coming back up again after being in a horse trough. This is God declaring truth to this person. This is them saying, God, I've sinned against you. I need a new heart. I want you to forgive me. This is that person then professing that reality to the church. This is then that person uniting themselves to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When they come out of the water, they're given a new identity and they're breaking the power of Satan over their life. That's what God intended for this thing to be. And when you see this, it's like, how do we not go crazy when people get baptized? How do we not freak out? Because this is the most powerful, profound thing that we get to witness as followers of Jesus. It's the greatest miracle that we could witness. Some of you remember this, a few weeks ago, one of our guys that uh, serves the church like crazy, Ruben Ozuna, he, uh, he had stomach cancer, and the Lord dramatically healed him of stomach cancer. Most of you know that story, it's like medically, like there it is, he had cancer, we prayed for him, now he doesn't have any cancer, it's amazing. And we celebrated, I remember when Sean told everybody that story, and we, we were moved to tears, and we were celebrating. And I don't want to take away from that story, that is an incredible, incredible thing. But that's not nearly as miraculous as what we're about to see in just a few moments. What we're about to see is God taking dead hearts and making them alive. Not by anything that that person has done, but by sheer grace. What we're about to see is God saying, there's no amount of sin that you've ever committed that I could not forgive and step into in love. There's no shame that you have that I couldn't wash over. There's no crimes that you've done. I'll forgive all of it. That's what we're about to see. It's the most miraculous, powerful thing that you could ever witness.